Well, when a baby is born uh, into a royal family, we naturally think of a regal celebration. But in the case of Jesus Christ, our Messiah, his birth and his childhood, as we're well familiar with, it was not so regal. It was not filled with royal pageantry. So I've entitled our message today, The Not-So-Regal King of Fulfillment. The Not-So-Regal King of Fulfillment. You see, Jesus was born in a humble and a lowly state, and he was born into dark and sinful times. So today we're actually going to see that we're actually going to see that the dark events surrounding the birth of Christ, they actually serve to fulfill the scriptures. Last week we saw from uh, Matthew chapter 2 that Herod felt threatened by the idea of a newborn king of the Jews. So he designed a plot to kill Jesus, but it was unsuccessful. He instructed the wise men to notify him when they found the child, and he lied. He said, when you find the location of the child, let me know, so that I too can come and worship the newborn king of the Jews. But his intention was to murder Jesus. So we know that the wise men, warned by God, went another way. They did not return to Herod. And this morning, we are going to pick off, we're going to pick up right where we left off. So meet me now in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. We're not going to read the narrative together uh, right now. Instead, uh, as I get into the exposition, I'll read the verses, verse by verse, to you. But Matthew chapter 2, 13 to 23, and I want to give you a, a summary of the narrative to set the context. There are three major movements before we jump into the text that you will notice. First, in verses 13 to 15, we see that after the wise men left, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. And the angel tells Joseph, take your wife and take baby Jesus into Egypt. And this was to escape the wrath of Herod. And so Joseph is actually instructed to remain in Egypt until the Lord tells him, okay, it's safe to come back now to Israel. So Joseph, in trust and obedience, he, he listens to God, and he takes Mary and the child into Egypt. And Matthew tells us this morning that, that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. So that's the first movement. So so as you look at the text, you're really following Jesus. You're following the movement of the baby. Wherever Jesus goes, his parents have to go, and you look at their journey. Then in verses 16 to 18, you see the second movement, Jesus coming out of Egypt. So we, re- we read, though, that once Herod realized that the wise men were not returning to, uh, with the child's location, he became furious And he became erratic, and he orders the horrendous, terrible murder of every male child under the age of two in that region. And so, but then in verses 17 and 18, we see that his massacre was actually predicted by the prophet Jeremiah. And we'll look at that. And that's the second movement in the text. Then in verses 19 and 23 is when we see Jesus exiting Egypt. 19 and 23, we read that after Herod's death, an angel of the Lord visits Joseph once again this time instructing him to take Mary and Joseph back into Israel. But being warned in a dream, Joseph did not bring Jesus back into Judea. 
Instead, he brings Jesus to a city called Nazareth in the district of Galilee. And so this was to fulfill Jesus being called a Nazarene, another fulfillment of prophecy. So we're going to look at three fulfillments of prophecy, right? So that's what's happening uh, in today's passage. Okay, so if you have God's word, follow along now. The first point that we see is Jesus is born the king of the Exodus. Jesus is born the king of the Exodus. Now in verse 13, starting in verse 13, let me read into your hearing the word of God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, meaning take action. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Let me add, Joseph, you will be a refugee. You will go into exile. And remain there and until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So in obedience, Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed. They fled to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, here's what I think is interesting. <clears throat> now, the Bible, to be clear, doesn't make any references to the connection between this Joseph to the original Joseph of Genesis. But I think what's interesting when you look at the pattern of the entire Bible story is that it was a man named Joseph in Genesis that was first sold into Egypt by his brothers, landed in Egypt later rose to prominence because God, what, spoke to Joseph in dreams, the original Joseph. And, and in a sense, it was God through Joseph who brought Israel into Egypt in the first place so that they would be spared from the ravishes of the famine. Later, after that first original Joseph passed away, uh, a new pharaoh arose and he enslaved the Israelites. And I think it's really interesting now that it's a new Joseph, the Joseph who adopted Jesus, that now brings Jesus, representing Israel, back into Egypt. And God communicates to this new Joseph in the same way, through dreams. Again, Matthew makes no reference of that. I'm telling you that to give you some insight to the entire Bible story and maybe seeing some patterns. But if you look at the text, here's how Matthew presents Jesus. He presents Jesus as the true and fullest fulfillment of Israel. Jesus is the Son of God. But Israel is described in the Old Testament via metaphor as the Son of God, as a Son of God. Israel is the Son of God, metaphorically, but Jesus is the real Son of God. And <clears throat> Jesus represents in its fullest sense the Exodus motif. Jesus Christ ushers in a new spiritual exodus because he's going to deliver people, the people of God, from not physical slavery, but the spiritual slavery that we have to sin. Now, notice in verses 13 and 15, which we read, that Jesus is taken into Egypt to escape from Herod. And in verse 15, Matthew tells us that this is so Jesus can come back out of Egypt. So why is all this happening? All of this is happening in real time to really fulfill the Old Testament prophecies spoken by Hosea. Now, this is talking about Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, where it actually says, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, Hosea is a book about God's love for disobedient Israel. 
God used Hosea's marriage to a prostitute to paint a picture of his own love for his faithless bride, Israel. Israel, who God constantly forgave, constantly delivered, yet Israel would continually yoke themselves to idolatry. Israel would constantly turn to the foreign nations and worship foreign gods, but yet God did not give up on Israel. He continued to look at Israel as his son. And so there was this prophecy saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Out of Egypt. And when Hosea was speaking, he was thinking of the original Exodus event. Right? So when, when God speaks to Hosea and it says, out of Egypt I called my son, it was referring to the original Exodus where Israel was enslaved in Egypt and out of Egypt, the original Exodus, which Moses led the people out of Egypt. Out of Egypt God called his son. <clears throat> And Matthew applies Hosea 11 to Jesus. So Matthew is saying that when this new Joseph brings Jesus back into Israel later, that's going to fulfill the words in its fullest sense out of Egypt, I call my son. Now here's why it's tricky. Is Matthew changing the meaning of the Old Testament? No, he's not. What Matthew is doing is he's expanding the fulfillment of the original words. When Hosea wrote those words, Hosea had no idea that it would include Jesus Christ. Hosea was thinking back into history, to the Exodus event of Israel coming out of Egypt. But Matthew is saying Jesus Christ is the truest sense of the perfect Israelite. He is God's son in the fullest sense, and he's going to represent Israel once again coming out of the Exodus. Only when Jesus comes out of Egypt, he's coming back and he's representing freeing us from a spiritual slavery because that's what he's going to do on the cross. But it also represents suffering. It represents the fact that Jesus' father and his mother, Joseph and Mary, had to suffer. Can you imagine them going into Egypt? They have to run into this land that historically enslaved the Jewish people. And going into this foreign land and building a home and having to wait. You know, what if Herod sends a secret agent and a bounty hunter into Egypt? So even in Egypt, they're afraid. You have to think that they're real people. And they're thinking, we're going to raise our son here, but this is not our home. Think about that. They're refugees. They're immigrants. This is not our home. When is the Lord going to speak to us again? When are we going to be able to go home? When can our son finally be safe? Just think of what his parents went through. So even in terms of his parents, Joseph and Mary, they are having to obey God. Now I want you to think of the idea of finding rest. What is the idea of home? What's the idea of the promised land? What's the idea where God dwells with you in a, a place where you can call home? It's a place where you could rest. Not just physical rest, but you're talking about spiritual rest. Resting in God's presence. When they're in Egypt, they're not truly in the place of rest. They're not in the land of rest. So where would Joseph and Mary have to find their rest? They would have to find spiritual rest in Christ. right? They would actually have to believe that this baby is the Son of God. Do you think Joseph ever had a moment saying, because of this son, 
because of my adopted son, I have to go through this unrest in life, this suffering, this hardship. No, Joseph had to trust in God. He had to trust that, God, I believe your word. I believe your word. I believe what you say. I believe that this is the son of David. I believe that this baby is the son of God. I believe what you said, that I have to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. Joseph believed in the gospel before the death and resurrection of Christ. He had to. And that's where Joseph had to find his rest. Isn't that interesting that even Joseph found his spiritual rest by trusting in that son? And, and like I mentioned last week and two weeks ago, as he observed his son growing, he realized his son is sinless. I mean, that had to be an indicator. Uh, oh, I have this son and he's sinless. Joseph trusted in his own son, adopted son, in the son, that this is the son of God. And I think that's what carried him through. And he believed in the word of God. So Joseph himself was not only experiencing the exodus of being in Egypt, and then when he comes out, he himself experiences a type of exodus, but he experiences exile. Right? He has to run into a foreign land. You see, exile in the Old Testament was like punishment. It's like Israel. You're not believing in God. You're not trusting in God. So if you don't want to be under the reign of God, Yahweh, then I'm going to put you under the reign and the rule and the oppression of foreign kings. And so Israel was under Babylonian captivity. But finally, Cyrus comes and says, I'm going to let Israel go back. I'm going to let the Jews go back. Whoever wants to go back, they can go back to their homeland. Right? So you have this idea that every time you are out of the land, Israel, you're in exile. You're like in punishment. And so here's Joseph and Mary in exile. So Jesus, he's going to usher in a true and better exodus, representing Israel in the fullest sense. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And Joseph experiences that. He experiences that every bit of it. But Joseph himself is also in exile. And baby Jesus is a king. He's not the king of royalty in his early years, not this regality, not sitting on the throne. But Jesus himself as a baby is the king of the exiles. That leads us to point number two. So first, Jesus is born king of the exodus, but a different type of exodus, a spiritual exodus. Secondly, Jesus is the king of the exiles. I say exiles plural because I'm not talking about the event of the exile, but I'm talking about people who are not at home. Joseph, this is not your home, but you have Christ. You have the Son of God. You are a foreigner. And even later, you'll see under point number three, even when you go back into Israel, it's still not your home. Beloved, can you hear the connection between us and Jesus, us and Jesus' parents? This is not our home. We have American citizenship, maybe, but we are perpetual foreigners when it comes to the spiritual kingdom of God. We are exiles, and Jesus is the king of the exiles. And even in his birth, he was an exile. Let me read into your hearing, verses 16 to 18, where you see the pain of exile. <clears throat> Verse 16, it says this, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, because they didn't come back to him, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old or under. So not just Jewish children, but mostly 
the Jews who lived in that region. How many of you guys have two-year-olds or have had two-year-olds? Or Just imagine that. What would that look like? One of the soldiers coming, taking your child, mothers crying. Why? Because Herod is looking for Jesus. He's looking for Jesus to kill Jesus. Are you Jesus? Are you the king of the Jews? Is your son? He doesn't know. He doesn't know. He's killing all of them. Just think of the world that Jesus was born into. Terror. Infanticide. All because Christ was born. It says then, continuing in verse 16, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Right? So he kind of figured, okay, if... If the wise men told me Jesus is born today or recently, then maybe not the three-year-olds, but the two-year-olds. Can you imagine? I know what I would say, and this is the truth. My son is two and a half. Please don't take him. Just, just humanize this for a little bit, the Christmas story. Verse 17 God, why would you allow this? God, I don't understand. Why would you allow this? Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Verse 18, highlighted on the screen for you. Ooh, there's sin right here. I didn't see this. Okay. (laughs) Even the most beautiful screens are marred, right? (laughs) Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah. Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, verses 16 and 18, we see that Jesus was not born into a world that is foreign to us. Right now, we are reminded that we, are lived in a, we live in a world where you may send your kids to school and you, you don't know what's going to happen because of evil. Because of evil in this world. We live in a world where not infants, but fetuses are murdered. That's a whole different topic we'll talk about in January. But this is a world that we live in. right? This is a real world. Jesus understands the world that we live in today. He was born into such a time as this. And Herod ordered the murder of every male infant under the age of two. This atrocious act is motivated by Satan. And the reason I say this is because I believe Satan is working through Herod to try to kill the Messiah. There's spiritual evil behind this. And Satan knows that eventually Jesus will go to the cross to defeat him once and for all. So therefore, God delivers his son from Herod to ensure that Jesus could live to grow into a man to go to the cross so that Easter could happen. Right, so you have a spiritual war happening as well. And in verse 18, Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. That's literally Jeremiah 31 verse 15. And that's literally the it right there. So I don't have an additional slide for you. Literally Jeremiah 31 15. Now let me give you context of Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 is also where you read about Uh, where you begin to read about the new covenant. But Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah is describing the great pain and sorrow that God's people would experience because they were entering Babylonian captivity. That's the context. What was Ramah? 
Ramah was a town five miles north of Jerusalem. And in Jeremiah's day, Ramah was located on the border of the two kingdoms, the kingdom of the north and Judah, the kingdom of the south. And so there's this symbolism that Ramah is the place where you have all of Israel, all of true Israel, Judah and the north, right? And also, I want to show you something, Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. And it reads this, right? Jeremiah 40, verse 1, it tells us that from Ramah, when he took him and bound him in chains, along with all the captives of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. Can you imagine that? This is where all of the Jews were lined up for Babylonian deportation. That, that's just, this is the place. Ramah was the place where they were getting ready for exile, where they lined up all the Jews and they were, going, they, they were forced to leave their home, going into exile. And so this is the place. The, think of the pain. The, think of the pain of exile. And so Rachel's weeping. Who's Rachel? Rachel was the wife of Jacob from the book of Genesis. Jacob had 12 sons, and the 12 sons became 12 tribes of Israel. Israel, right? And so Rachel is the mother of Israel, symbolically, but really she's the mother of Israel. And so when Rachel is weeping for her children, that's symbolically saying that the mother of Israel is crying tears of pain because her children are being exiled. That's the original context. Here in Matthew, that context is heightened. It's heightened because Rachel now, the mother of Israel, is crying tears of pain because literally Israelite male children under the age of two are being slaughtered because of Jesus, because Jesus was born. You look at the pain that Jesus is born into, and I, and I want you to see that tension of, of how God is good, why God is still good. But before I do that, i got to give you the good news already in Jeremiah, 30, uh, Jeremiah 31. So what you have in Matthew is a citation of Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Let me show you verse 16. Jeremiah 31, verse, verse 16, you always got to read the very next verse. It says, thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, meaning have hope. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. Lord, they shall come back from the land of the enemy. Now you go to Matthew. They are back in Israel. But they're still under foreign occupation. They're under Roman rule. So what is this talking about? This is talking about a greater return from exile. And yeah, we, we can think of the future eschaton. But right here... You see fulfillment according to what Matthew is saying that when Jesus comes back from Exodus, here comes the Messiah, here comes the son of David, here comes the person who's going to save us from the real exile, spiritual exile. He's coming back, and when Jesus comes back, he's going to fulfill Jeremiah 31, 16. According to Matthew, it tells us this. I want you to see even deeper. Now we're in the Matthean context. Matthew chapter 1, verse 17. Bible students, follow this. Matthew chapter 1 is the genealogy. And what's awesome about this 
is that in verse 17 it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to when? From King David all the way to the deportation to Babylon, to the, to the Christ, 14 generations. Let me make that easy for you. All that's saying, all that's saying is that until this point in history, there had not been a Davidic king on the Davidic throne. So from the deportation, ever since the deportation of Babylon, there was not a king of David. There was not a king of David. And Matthew, writing to Jewish readers, wants to present that this lowly, humble king, bringing in a new spiritual exodus, coming out of spiritual exile, but literally out from Egypt, he's coming back in, here comes your Davidic king. But it's not what you would expect. This Davidic king, this is the son of David. It's Jesus Christ. He doesn't come immediately to a throne. He comes in brokenness. He comes as a result of pain. So Rachel will weep once more because of Herod's massacre. But hear me when I say this. What Matthew wants us to know is that, yes, Rachel's going to weep one more time. But that will be the last time. Because what leads to exile is sin. And there is a Savior from the city of David, born in Bethlehem today, who came to deal with the spiritual problem of sin. And if you understand the spiritual meaning of the text, you will weep no more. Because this will be the last time that you go into exile. Because there is a true and better exodus coming, a true and better deliverer from exile. This is Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, Herod plays into this, right? He, he fulfills scripture because he orders these infants, two years old and younger, to be murdered. And Matthew tells us this is to fulfill scripture. Now, Herod has no idea and no intention to fulfill the prophecies of God. But this is exactly what happened. God clearly predicted Herod's massacre long before it happened, and I read this, and I still ask God, every time I have to preach this passage, I think this is the third time, I said, God, how are you good? How are you good? And this is what happened. I want you to think back to Exodus chapter 12. What happened in Exodus chapter 12, verse 30? How was Pharaoh convinced temporarily to release Israel? How did the first exodus happen? Death, right? God sent a plague that the firstborn male child of every household would die that night when the angel of death passed over Egypt. Not just two years and younger. And the Egyptians, Gentiles like you and me, that's God's judgment. That's God's judgment, beloved. Let me read to you Exodus 12.30. There's, part of Exodus 12.30 says, There was loud wailing throughout Egypt because there wasn't a house without someone dead. That's God's judgment on Egypt and Pharaoh. 
all these Gentile children, no shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Christians, hear this, no shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Mothers wailing because they're Gentile sons of, of a large age range, dead, the firstborn. Now you go into Israel. Jesus is born two years and younger. Here's the grace in this. We believe that every child under the age of accountability, and we're not certain exactly what age that is, but definitely two years and younger are going immediately to heaven. That's God's grace. This is different from Egypt. So Rachel's crying loud tears. The mothers in Egypt wailed and their sons in judgment. And the first exodus happened. Jesus brings in a new spiritual exodus. There is payment. There is death. There is a cost. But every single two-year-old that was murdered immediately in heaven. And those babies, I mean, I don't know, like they're in heaven, you know, in glory, cheering on Jesus, knowing that that boy needs to live because it's through that boy that Herod wants to kill. That's the reason why they are in heaven. That's the reason that salvation is going to come to the world and the nations because the baby Jesus has to stay alive so that he can make it to the cross. That's God's grace. That is God's grace. And how old was Mary when she had Jesus? Someone tell me. I can't hear you. Very young. Some say 12, maybe 15. So when, when Jesus resurrects, how old would these mothers be? Young enough to be alive, young enough to place their faith in the resurrected Christ and go to heaven and see their child in the resurrection. The hope for these mothers crying. It's the last time you will cry is in that baby. Now, this is where I was preparing. In front of my computer, I, just tears coming down my eyes. Not, I mean, I, I try not to cry anymore. You've got to be a tough guy. You know, you're a dad now. Your son's looking at you. And I just thought of Mary. And this is not in the text. And I said, do you think that Mary felt guilty at all? Mothers, how would you feel? You're running, okay, to Egypt, and you know that all these other mothers are crying. How would you feel, mothers? How would you feel coming back into Israel and knowing that all these babies and all these mothers hurt and all these babies are slaughtered because they're trying to kill your son or the son that God gave you. But you get to hold your son. Do you think you feel any pain in that? Mary was righteous, right? Joseph, a righteous man? Do you think he felt guilty? What do you think held Mary? Where did she find her rest? In the words of the Lord to Joseph, name him Jesus for he will save the, his people from their sins. 
Mary had to find her rest in the fact that the child she was holding would save people from their sins. How do you think mothers, how do you think Mary found her rest? By trusting her faith in that child. Oh, coming back into Israel. Parents, there's a bounty on your child's life. Don't you think there's a fear that Herod's family would still send someone to kill your son at any age? So what are you thinking? When will I find rest? There's a death sentence on my son. Finally, your son becomes a man, and maybe, Mary, you can have peace. Okay, they're going to stop looking for my son. Only if Mary knew, right, that, that there's a divine death sentence on your son. Mary's going to bear the same pain that these mothers bear when Jesus turns 33. And she looks upon her son on the cross, knowing that he's sinless, and he's crucified. Mary, too, would see her son murdered unjustly. And at that point, maybe she looks to her son and says, you're going to die for the sins and save, of the world and save people. I didn't know it was going to be like this. Mary had to trust in her son. But Jesus probably told his mom, Mom, I'm going to rise again. You're going to see me. The Bible tells us that Mary was one of the women who witnessed Jesus crucified, her son. And Jesus telling his mom, Mom, I'm going to see you again. She had to place her faith in the resurrection. And she would see her son again. And then he would ascend. And she would see her son again in heaven as will we. You see, the hope for miscarriage, redemption from abortion, the hope for anyone going through pain, you're born, your child has disability, the hope is Christ. Don't think that Mary does not understand or Joseph or that Jesus does not understand you or suffering in this world or children being gunned down in schools. Who is the hope? It's Christ. Christ understands. You see, this is where you have to see how the Bible comes alive. When you look at this text, it's theological, prophecies being fulfilled. How you make this text alive and the Spirit comes alive is when you follow Joseph and Mary, and you try to see their human experience and what you would feel if you were them. Mary, looking at her son on the cross and experiencing, bearing at that moment the pain of all the mothers that lost their children as her son bore the sins of the world. But it's because of him that all these mothers, if they exercise their faith in her son, God's son, they would experience a spiritual exodus a spiritual return from exile, and they would see their sons again. You see, until we get to heaven, beloved, we are exiles. And as long as we're exiles, there will be pain and suffering in this world, but we have to see God's goodness and his grace and his mercy towards his people, even when the world can't see it. 
Third point, final point. King of no esteem. I have to get the E in there. He's the king of the exodus. He's the king of the exiles. He's the king of no esteem. Verse 19. Let me read this into your hearing. 19 to 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. Joseph keeps getting these dreams, just like the OG Joseph, in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee which you'd rather be in Jerusalem than Galilee. Okay, Verse 23, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. Let me just translate that for you. If you could afford to and didn't work in the Inland Empire, would you rather live in closer to Los Angeles or a nice part of Orange County or Riverside? Nothing against Riverside. Some of you went to UCR or go to UCR. I love Riverside. I, I, I like Riverside. Okay? But if you could afford to, would you not rather, you know, so just putting into perspective, Nazareth is not a place you want to go to. It's the boondocks, it's the boonies, right? He went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He was called, he shall be called a Nazarene. Once again, this is tricky, and here's why it's tricky. It says, so that what was spoken by the prophets, but never in the Old Testament is the word Nazarene used? It doesn't appear. So we have to do some study. There are two views that deserve our attention. The first one is Isaiah 11, verse 1. It says, There shall be, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And so this is clearly a messianic and Davidic passage. Jesse is David's father. Matthew's argument is that Jesus is the son of David and the, and the king of the Jews. And the Hebrew word for branch is pronounced Natsir, Natsir, right? Natsir, which sounds like Nazarene. So the first view is trying to say, oh, there's the pronunciation of the branch to Matthew and Nazarene. Okay, so that's one view. I don't think that's the strongest view. But I think it's fair for you to, to present that to you because some conservative scholars take that position. I think this is what Matthew is getting at. In John chapter 1, verse 46, John, Philip tells Nathaniel that they found the Messiah Jesus of Nazareth. And do you remember Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth was a town that people looked down upon. If there was no significance to Nazareth, why would anything good come out of Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? In Isaiah 53, verse 3, and I believe that this is what Matthew is referring to, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and suffering, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and here's where I got my point, we esteemed him not. He's the king of no esteem. He was not exalted. People didn't look up to him. They didn't look to him as exalted, regal, or royal. There's nothing extraordinary 
from a worldly perspective about Jesus, his birth or his life. This second view is the stronger view in my opinion. So we see the theme of Christ embodying Israel's greatest suffering. Israel's suffered in slavery in Egypt and God delivered them through the Exodus and Jesus Christ in his baby form, he embodied this suffering. He would embody it fully later but him representing Israel's suffering, he brings a true and better exodus. But in a spiritual sense, he delivers us from spiritual slavery. The exile to Israelites is a time of suffering and un being under oppression. But Christ is the king of the exiles. And Jesus, coming out of Egypt, fulfilling Jeremiah, the words of Jeremiah, he brings a true and better exile from spiritual sin. And so he's the king of the exiles. He, he embodies exodus and exile the great sufferings of Israel. And then not only that, but he himself suffers. He will suffer on the cross for sin. And sin was the reason why Israel kept finding themselves in difficult places. Well, God is sovereign over all that. And in many ways, Christ is the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy. He would suffer on the cross to defeat our greatest enemy, sin and Satan. And so the big idea of this morning's message, if you look at the true thrust of this passage is that Christ was born as the king of not glorious regality and royalty, but Christ was born as the king of Israel's suffering. For he will suffer to deliver Israel and the nations from the greatest enemy, which is sin and Satan. Satan was the one working behind the scenes to have all the infants killed. Christ was born as the king of Israel's suffering, for he will suffer to deliver Israel and the nations from the greatest enemy. So applicationally, first we see that like Joseph and Mary, we have to trust God's word, even when there's suffering or hardship or darkness in this world or in our lives. We have to, ha be, we have to obey the word of God to us. When, when we can't see what's going on, we have to cling to those words, and those words ought to point us to Christ. Where we find our rest, just like Joseph and Mary, is in the baby boy who would then grow up, go to the cross, and rise from the dead. We find our rest in Christ alone. He is the promised child. He is the long-awaited king. We find our rest in him. We will never be at home in this world. If you try to find comfort in this world, it will leave you empty. You will only find true peace and rest in the person of Christ, and it's in Christ that everything else will make sense. The second is that Christ understands our suffering. He, he will bear on the cross the, the most painful, worst suffering, right, that, that anybody could ever imagine. He would bear the wrath of God. He would suffer the judgment of the holy wrath of God coming upon him in our place for our sins. He's not only the true and better representative of Israel, he is the true and better representative of the human race on the cross to pay for our sins. And so because of that, on the cross, he saw everything. He saw the shame, he saw the guilt, he saw the pain, he bore it all upon himself. Not just the sin, but the consequences of sin. He bore it all. And so anything that you go through, you're like, ah, God can't understand me. He does through his son. And so he will, he will make you whole. And so if you don't have Christ this morning, I want to invite you once again to receive Christ. If you don't have Christ, believe in him. He died 
for your sins in your place. He rose again on the third day. And if you turn to him and say, Jesus, I need you. I confess that I'm a sinner and I want to change. Will you change my heart? That's repentance. I want to repent. Will you change my heart? I want to live for you. I want to surrender to you as king over my life. It will be a slow process, but he will change your life. If you want to do that, I'm not trying to do any emotional, like, hey, Ray, get on the, you know, do some Nordstrom music for me. Come walk this. No, no, none of that. Pray about it. Let it be real. Let the Holy Spirit work in your heart. But it, it is an invitation and a call for you to come to the cross. If that's you, come talk to me afterwards. I'll be at the next steps table outside until 1230. Come talk to me. I'd love this Christmas for you to receive the greatest gift of God, which is his son, Jesus Christ to be king over your life, and to give you rest. Receive Christ. Beloved, will you bow with me now in prayer? God in heaven, come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. Free from our fears and our sins, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone, be thine all sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Father, we come before you and recognize and, and honor your son, Jesus Christ, as the long-expected messianic son of David. Father, we believe that you came to set us free from the bondage of spiritual slavery and the exile. Lord, you give us a true and better spiritual return from exiles. We are perpetual foreigners in this world. Our home is with you. Bring us home. There are some searching this morning in here today who need to be brought home to you. They think that they can build this home through the riches of this world or what this world has to offer, but Lord, there is nothing that will bring them home in their heart and give them safety and peace and rest and fulfillment until they find Christ as king over their lives. I pray, Lord, that through the efficacious work of the Holy Spirit that you would draw them to yourself and that you would bring them home today. Bring them home, Lord. And for all of us who believe, it's in your timing. Lord, I pray, Lord, that in your timing, you would bring us home. Come again, Lord Jesus. Come again and bring us home. Lord, this Christmas, there are some in here suffering from cancer, some suffering from disease, some who have lost loved ones, some financially struggling, some struggling in their marriage or in their parenting. Father, our hearts every day, don't, we don't have rest. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us rest, but bring us to that rest in Christ, Lord. I pray that you would give our hearts rest. Help us to rest in you because you are king. Bring us before your glorious throne. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's worship him.